hello and welcome back to the Nowhere Office, wherever you are. With me, Julia Hobsbawm. And me, Stefan Stern. This is the podcast which looks at the world of work as it is, as it could be, should be, might be, with some of the leading thinkers and doers of the day. Well, we're back at PwC for the second in our special series with PwC, the uh, leading professional services firm, looking at AI. Stefan, we're very technologically assisted, aren't we? Because we have a guest joining us remotely. Yes, and we've got him set up there like a a distant uh, chief executive zooming in from some vital part of the world with inspiring thoughts to share with us uh, and we can even wave at him and get the audio visual. And we'll tell you who the him is in a minute but it's quite interesting because really one of the things we're going to cover in this episode is the whole question of the co-pilot, the assisted AI, the software enhanced human experience. So we could not have arranged it better but the truth is the reason why our guest is joining us remotely is that he is so busy he couldn't be with us in person. Um, He says it's his busiest time of the year, but he's being modest because every day of the year is busy for him. He is Azim Azhar, one of the biggest and most in-demand voices on technology who coined the uh, phrase exponential view before anybody realised just how exponential generative AI was. So he's a real clever clogs. Azim, hello. Hi, Julia. Nice to to be with you. Nice to see you uh, in virtual person uh, to both you and Stefan. And what we're going to do is have a chat about upside, downside, but beginning with upside of all of this extraordinary technology. And certainly we want you to guide us through the very latest exponential developments. But first, Stefan Mm. is going to ask you to tell us a bit about you. Mm. Yes, as in, because as you were just saying off air, we've we've kind of one of these relationships where we've sent each other jokes and liked each other's uh, witticisms on Twitter and so on. And um, or X, as it now is, exponentially right, yeah. been recreated as. <laughs> and uh, and yet, actually, maybe some of our listeners will they will have seen yourself. Perhaps they're subscribers of the many hundreds of thousands of subscribers you have to your uh, newsletter and so on. But perhaps you could just do a potted CV for new new listeners starting here. I, I'll do my best, uh, Stefan. It is quite potted because I've been quite, uh, I've been quite peripatetic, uh, probably saved by the the speed of technology change in a sense. You know, many years ago, I got involved in technology when it was just the internet. So the internet was sort of bubbling in the early '90s when I was at university, and I was really lucky to. to to latch onto it. And because when I left university, I was the only person pretty much who had used the internet, uh, I was able to get jobs in companies who needed people who knew how to use the internet. Uh, Believe it or not, that was a thing in in 1994. And, uh, you know, so I've spent uh, up until about 10 years ago, my time in a revolving door between uh, being a startup founder or a startup investor, and then working in uh, in large companies in their innovation functions, which, as you know, as the sort of long-standing management guru of the, the Financial Times, that innovation function doesn't really do anything, but it always reports to the CEO. So I used to get great uh, you know, top-level access. So when I was tired, I would take a big company job. Um, and then after I sold my, um, my last company, which was uh, Peer Index, used a technology we'd call AI today. It was called machine learning back then. Mm-hmm. Um, I started to write this, this newsletter, which is called Exponential View, and which I think um, has a sort of unique... Uh, approach in the sense that I was a practitioner and builder of these technologies, but I 
you know, I, I do have a, a training, um, slightly embarrassingly, in, in my degree is in PPE, which no. is a philosophy, politics and economics, which is the biggest non-degree uh, that the <laughs> United Kingdom offers anyone. Um, and, but I've sort of tried to wrap that systems lens around understanding of technology. And it turned out, of course, that my timing was was impeccable because that was the moment where people realised that technology wasn't just about upgrading your iPhone. It was about how the world of work was going to change. It was about who has power. It was about the power between the boss and the employee. It was about who gets to make decisions in our in our world about what we can see and what we can't see. And, and I just found myself quite well located as someone who, you know, it, uh, addressed, answered in some sense C.P. Snow's call, which was that I, I am a, a bridge uh, or a bit of elastic uh, between the two cultures. <laughs> Can we jump to today, Azim, and the impact of the latest software, hardware and AI in relation to work? What's the story? How big is the impact and what are the headlines? Uh, thanks, Julia. You know, it's been about a year since ChatGPT arrived in our world like an alien uh, from outer space. And I think even as a surprise to uh, Sam Altman, you know, when he released it uh, on the 29th or 30th of November 2022, uh, he said, it's just a research release, have a play with it. I mean, it's obviously <laughs> not a product. You'd never call a product ChatGPT. That's a sort of internal engineer's code. Uh, and that the last 12 months, I think we have to characterise as... Um, to misquote Peter Mayle, um, our year in chaos. And I want to bring out one pair of data points that, that sort of express that. So um, OpenAI recently said that 92% of Fortune 500 companies, 500 biggest companies by market cap in America, have developers who are using OpenAI's APIs. Now, the API is the bit that an IT department will access in order to build a service internally. So 92% of the Fortune 500 in less than a year. That's an incredible penetration rate. Uh, and separately, Tom Malone, who's a professor at MIT, um, did a survey of 480-odd chief digital officers uh, a few weeks ago. 19% um, of them said they had active projects at a department level or bigger using generative AI, sort of the technology that is un, that is uh, a chat GPT is part of. So, so there's a couple of things to think, think about there. The first is that for an emerging technology in less than a year to get 19% of department level experiments going is enormous. I mean, mm -hmm. it normally takes years to get that fast. So that's extremely fast, time compression, exponentialization, all of that. But the other thing is that it's 92% um, self-declared bottom-up counting when you count the individual developers and 19% when you count top-down from the bosses. And I think that that actually highlights one of the really interesting dynamics here, which is that individual workers, whether they're developers playing around with the APIs or the, their individual knowledge workers just using the web app, are finding this really, really useful, and they will walk around corporate strictures in order to make use of it. <laughs> so a couple of things occur to me. I mean, you, you, you've you made a play on words of a year in Provence, which in its day was a bestseller in, I think, about the 80s. Um, Penguin, if <laughs> right. I remember, I think I might even have been a rookie publicist on the team, um, about escapism, about what happens if you leave your life and go off into a sort of a new dimension. And that's ironic, isn't it? Because one of the things we're experiencing is the, is the lack of boundary between work and 
and home and life. And that is making work very stressful for people to navigate. So I wanted to ask your view about that, about the kind of porousness between work and life. But I also wanted to come back to what you've just alluded to, which is the apparent democratisation of this technology. So, mm. yeah, how, how immersed are we? And immersion is another key word, isn't it, of the moment. Is, yeah. How immersed are we in our life and work thanks to AI? And politically, is it is it democratising or not? Uh, you know, I think that uh, when I go and talk to, to bosses of companies, uh, I'm... I'm still struck by the fact that when I walk into a room, I've no idea where, whether every hand is going to start, put up, go up and say, I've used this stuff and I lo love it, or I'm going to go into a room and no hands will go up. And I still have that uh, that experience. And it, it's common, uh, you know, across different different industries. I, I just don't know when I get in there. But what I, what I do see is I see that when people start to use these tools as knowledge workers, and they figure out how to how to use them, and they are slippery products, you know, it is, a, it's not like using a hammer, which does the same thing every time. It's a bit more like using, uh, I, I don't know how many of your, your, your listeners are in the UK, a blancmange or a creme brulee to do something, you know, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> do what you want it to do, and sometimes it it will just sort of go everywhere, um, and, and we can we can see that. I mean, there's some early early data. Um, so colleagues of mine at um, Harvard Business School did a long term a long term several week study with um, 800 consultants from a, a, a consulting firm, and what they found was that of the consultants who used the the uh, Chat GPT, they were. 40% more productive in general, and they were performing at a higher quality level as rated from, from one to seven. And the thing that I think is really interesting is that if we go back over the years and when, you know, you and I would bump into each other pre-COVID, uh, and it was about the time that all of those um, World Economic Forum reports were coming out going, automation is coming and everyone needs to go into higher order knowledge work. You don't want to be a data entry clerk. Um, what's happened is that ChatGPT has actually zeroed directly into what we might call high value knowledge work, the mm. kind of work that the three of us might do or a strategy consulting consultant or a marketing analyst might do. And and that um, has has is quite a surprise. I mean, it really changes the way we think about it. And it's really powerful in a sense because those people in those types of, of jobs are the ones who are maybe a little bit alpha in their personality, really driven to get ahead, got to get the MBA, got to, you know, keep pushing, do the extra two or three hours. And here is a tool that will help them perform better, help them work quicker. And how will they make that trade-off between creating space in their lives or just being even more alpha than before? And, you know, maybe that will be a, a cultural thing or be, an, you know, an individual thing. But you mentioned the dread word management. So yes. I have to put my serious face on and say... So we want experimentation, of course. We want people to try things out. But that also means there's a risk of people pushing it too far or not realising that they're being delivered up what, what are called, I think, hallucinations <laughs> right. by these large language models. So what's your advice in terms of introducing this in a kind of creative enabling way? But, but what are also the guardrails to stop people running off and um, going public with something that is absolutely crazy or dangerous? I think that's a really great question. Uh, I mean, what we did in in my team, with uh, there's myself, and I've got three, three or four people who who work in in my team with research and other things, is we very quickly started practicing this. So back in as soon as people got back from Christmas, January this year, we would meet daily 
to discuss our experimentation, hmm. uh, and we called it we called it praxis, which is a sort of left wing sociologist word meaning <laughs> not practice, but sort of the in- active engagement and self reflection of you, of how I, you learn. You see that PP came in useful after all. It did actually. That's a word that my wife taught me many years later, but uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I paid enough attention during my degree. Um, and, and what um, what we then started to do was we started to establish some some really cre- key principles, which is you stand by all the words that you put in the email or in the newsletter and there is always a human in in the loop in that process and i think that that's what you want you need to do as a manager which is to encourage people and to to be very very clear that they are ultimately responsible and what we have found back to the blamange analogy is that the the slipperiness does happen when you're asking for very very specific words because of the way the the underlying large language model works what it is really true to is concepts but it's so it's true to the idea of of dog it's not true to the the distinction between pug or border collie or uh, rottweiler right. uh, and so if you if you are doing that kind of conceptual abstract analysis at a concept level it it can actually be quite powerful and generally be very very useful but the words that come out are like the words of a 17 year old who's having to do a last minute english essay i mean you 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 wouldn't you wouldn't you know put them in front of a human but i think that abstract analysis is helpful so so from a for a manager you need to get people to experiment you need to draw the key guardrail about don't put private or or, or confidential data in there or personal data of customers in there and always maintain a human in the loop and do not expect it's the last words that come out that matter. It's a kind of conceptual analysis that you can start to trust. But is part of the risk now not, as I say, the blurring of boundaries, the always on, we know that, we've almost accepted that, there are different management ways of dealing with that, you know, um, etiquette and and so on. But it's, it's, there's a different risk now, isn't there, of, of distortion that to some degree, whether by accident or by design, and that if you don't have the investment in that human interface or if you don't have people that are sufficiently skilled at emotional literacy, you might have a mismatch between the scale and scope of the technology and its implementation. I think that's that's re- absolutely right, and that becomes a real... Uh, you know, a, a real thing that, that firms have to look out for. And one of the techniques that we've started to see emerge has been a technique that's called retrieval augmented generation. And what that means is that when the large language model talks back to you, it tries to provide a footnote to, to evidence why it's saying what it's saying. And that footnote might be a news story or, or something like that. And and in a way, that is about trying to tackle the, the hallucinations that, that Stefan alluded to, but also give, give you, you know, to address your point, Julia, which is give that some kind of an audit trail. But I think that one of the challenges we have to contend with, and that's, I think, why firms may end up being slightly slower at large-scale implementations, is that where you where these things are really really fast and that the kind of obvious savings um are often places where the people costs are much much lower so that that might be in customer service right so people costs are much lower in customer service than they are say in um in any job that involves a a lawyer or a consultant of, of some sort but 
customer service needs to be, have that on the one hand, that empathy that you referred to, but it also needs to be exactly right. You can't give me the wrong information about what I need to do with my mortgage, right? So you, you've got to get it exactly right. And getting it exactly right is technically expensive. And training me up so that I'm emotionally literate is, is expensive. And yet there's the lowest cost saving that you might get. And I think that firms are trying to figure out how they marry that because not a lot of companies have lots of open-ended knowledge workers of the of the type mm. of the three of us. So this, your description of it, I would have thought would, might be quite encouraging or reassuring to those people who are seeing headlines about, you know, the AI is coming and by the way, it's cleverer than you are and it's quicker than yeah. you are. What you're saying is that absolutely there needs to be the human element. And, and actually, if, to use the business language, the, the bigger value added actually comes from the, the human picking up the, the AI, picking up the chat GBT, whatever it is, work, and then really making it work in practice. Well, I, I mean, I think that's a, that would be a very happy world uh, to live in because there's another, you know, there's another factor, right, which is the CFO is sitting there thinking, mm, mm. how do I make, how do I improve my margin? How do I bring my costs down? And I think that there is that, that, that pressure. Um, there's a lot that we don't know, Stefan. I mean, we don't know how quickly these large language models will get good out of the box to be reliable for jobs work work like customer service. I mean we we, we don't really know that up up front um, and it's quite hard to predict and they might get there. But the other thing is the way they're being sold and presented and thought about in in many ways is about the cost saving rather than how can we how can we expand our business? Um, when you look at some other research, I think the, the critical researchers here is a Harvard academic called uh, Darren Asamoglu, who's looked at automation in all of its forms over the many uh, many decades. And the 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 thing that he sees, the dynamic he sees, is that displacement takes place much faster than the process of re reinstatement when you introduce an automation, <laughs> and. And displacement is rather sector-wide mm. because what happens is that one firm tends to outperform the others. Uh, and as it outperforms, it grows it, its revenues, it hires more people, and the other firms face worsening economic conditions. And that's where displacement tends to happen. So I think that dynamic is d does exist is a risk. I mean, Uber's the classic example of that, isn't it? And anybody that drives um, a, a taxi in central London, they still grumble about the fact that they have to not take cash and at least automate to the point that you, you know, you 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 have some convenience because Uber just blew that model completely away. There are new industries, though, aren't there, Azim, that are coming up directly as a result of this technology. And I mean, one in particular, I came across, maybe you've come across it called Upwage, which is uh, trying to improve the hourly rate of um, basically physical workers across America and using LLMs and right. software, they are able to create, I'm actually on it while I speak to you, but you can't see it because you're not in the same studio mm. as me, um, a map which goes both, you can look both by wages from $16 to $35 an hour, by food, retail, warehousing, etc., and by region. And that seems to me, back to my democratising point, you know, rather marvellous. That's upside, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's huge upside. And uh, but of course, where I think I think that the, the the 
predecessor of all of that was um, the rollout of GSM mobile telephony uh, in, in India in the late 1990s, early 2000s, a very famous Kerala fisherman uh, who uh, faced the same problem that hourly physical workers in the US faced, which was that they wouldn't know where the really good holes in the market were. Uh, and, and what happened was that mobile phones allowed them to figure out which of the landing bay beach marketplaces had demand for their catch of that day. Uh, and it, you would see wages rise by 10 or 15% within a year and consumer end prices drop by 5%. Uh, so everyone was a was a winner. And what Upwage, I think, is doing is exactly that, right? It's, it's making the that gig market much, much more efficient and matching opportunities to workers, allowing workers, therefore, to to benefit and actually also hoping, hopefully, buyers benefit too. And But you raised the point about mobile technology. And of course, that's right, isn't it? That's the immediate predecessor to generative AI. I mean, M-Pesa was the great right. liberator in, mm. in Africa, in Southern Africa in particular, wasn't it? With Vodafone investing heavily so that that meant you could get um, microfinance and, and medical diagnosis. So is there a direct correlation technologically between, if you like, the mobile phone was the last big thing and now it's Gen AI or what? what, what give us give us a little timeline, the little tech timeline. <laughs> I think that's a really, really great question. Um, you know, the, 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 what the mobile phone did was uh, it created a, a platform on which loads of other businesses were built, right? So mm -hmm. so you can't really ima imagine delivery without the mobile phone, right? Imagine picking up your Bakelite handset and uh, <laughs> dialing not the speaking clock, but, you know, mm -hmm. the speaking chef to, <laughs> to order your food. Um, and, and so so there is some similarity because there are lots of applications that can be built built on, on Gen AI. And the other thing that it does is, like the mobile phone, one way you can look at the mobile phone is, is that it eliminated the time it took to discover stuff because we always had our phone with us. And the thing that Gen AI will do is it will eliminate that discovery time once again for, because it's so quick at um, making sense of information and that is globally available. You know, once you introduce a new idea into a generative AI system, then everyone around it can also take advantage of, of, of that. Um, and the way that the Silicon Valley is now thinking about this is they are thinking about Gen AI as the first serious computing platform since since the mobile phone. But I would say that, that there's a difference now in terms of the, uh, the, the the risks that that people face because when the mobile networks rolled out, the number of firms that actually could build them was was somewhat restricted, and the number of firms that were directly under pressure from mobile were, were actually the same firms building <laughs> the mobile network. So it was AT&T and Vodafone and BT and, and so on. Mm. Um, with, with Gen AI, I think the challenge here is that, you know, more and more of the day-to-day -day office tasks can start to be done by these, these systems. And yes, we believe as, as economists that complementary businesses will, will emerge, but the question is how long will they take to emerge relative to the to the speed at which gen ai might roll out in, into the economy and just one you know one last thought which is that to think about blockbuster and netflix your know, blockbuster was a video rental store that went out of business to netflix i don't think it was clear in 1996 when the internet was becoming an everyday thing that it was going to be blockbuster that will go bust 
But I just don't think it was clear. I mean, it was clear in 2001, once Blockbuster had gone bust, but it wasn't clear in 1996. And when we look at Gen AI, it's not really clear to me which is which are the companies that will come under really, really severe pressure. That's right. That's that's absolutely right. Because I think you could say the same of Nokia and um, BlackBerry. It wasn't immediately right. obvious that they were in trouble. Certainly no one at Nokia or BlackBerry seemed to think they might be in trouble with the smartphone, but actually they were. That, that's right. And you remember that in just the, what the year before the iPhone launched, I think it was that the CEO of Nokia at the time was Yormo Olila, and they had a big picture of him on the cover of Fortune holding a banana handset saying, can anyone catch Nokia? <laughs> Although it's interesting because I'm fascinated um, it, with my sort of nerd management hat by the role of the peripheral player in um, The Outlier, I suppose. And there is a very famous case study of, of, of field work that was done for Nokia in China at the time. And somebody reported in, you know, an unread report, clearly, um, <laughs> uh, that, that, you know, people wanted to be connected to the world and they wanted to shop. In other words, they suggested as a result of this that Nokia develop a smartphone. And of course, now we're in what the sociologists, Rainey and Wellman, call the triple revolution of the internet, social um, and mobile. But at the time, Nokia basically passed on that. So I'm really interested in, you know, whether you're obviously a, a great regarder of the periphery, but what else is already there that we're just not seeing or hearing that might answer this question, what's the next blockbuster? Uh, that's a, I mean, it's a really hard question, actually, Julia, because we, you know, the blockbusters, I mean, I think the way that you, you need to see this is that the blockbusters emerge from the grassroots, right? It's always got to be product-led growth. So it has to be something that where people are flocking to the product without there being any marketing behind it. Now, ChatGPT was a really, really great example, but as we said, it wasn't really a product and it's not clear to me how strategically important it's going to end up being for OpenAI relative to other things that they might do. And I think the other thing I, I would say um, is that that generative AI or AI in general is such a general purpose technology it, it it's un, again it's unclear like the internal combustion engine whether you know the winner is going to be Ford or Daimler mm, both mm. making personal cars mm. or somebody making internal combustion engines for air aircraft um, but that said I mean I've seen a couple of really interesting products um, one is a, a product called perplexity which is a question and answer query service and it's probably replaced about 20% of my Google searches now. Um, and and that, uh, you know, but they, they're still at the stage where they don't have a business model, right? So there's no, there's no, I mean, there's a, I pay them 20 bucks a month, but there's no advertising. Um, and the other the other area where I think you might start to see these things more, more generally will be in what I think is of as modern factory work. So your know, modern factory work uh, is all of those PowerPoint slides that get produced inside companies to be shown to other employees and all of those Word documents that, that get produced, often to a template, often with very little new thinking, analytical <laughs> thinking that's gone into them. Mm. Uh, and, and I can imagine there being new products 
in in that in that world, and hopefully new products, by the way, to help us read them, so we humans don't have to read the thing mm. that's being generated I, by a machine. I realise, Azim, that some of our listeners won't know what we mean by blockbuster. We don't mean it as a noun. We mean it as a company that was nationwide global with videotapes, don't we? Um, and and that shows just how um, quickly you can you can become out of date isn't isn't it the case that really it's less the brands that we're going to be focusing on as the particular jobs i mean you know the job of mudlark and chimney sweep don't exist anymore um, right. people are saying now that the job of coder won't exist anymore because ai is going to make everybody able to code what what are, what are two or three jobs that you think will just not exist pretty quickly, even if we know that the argument is that the net gain is more jobs might still be created? Uh, I mean, the way we normally look at this is is through tasks. You know, what are the tasks within a job that can get automated and, and can get uh, enhanced? And I don't know of many jobs that get uh that where an AI system can can do the whole thing end to end. What it might be able to do is do a large proportion of them, and and then you you know you see the number of people working in that space uh, disappearing. Um, chimney sweeps dis- disappeared because we moved towards central heating, and so I think the the idea that coders would disappear is really a it's a combination of a couple of things. The first is can through talking to natural language can we start to design um, applications. And, you know, what I have coded in my life, and I have my first computer on the sitting behind me um, on, on the shelf, but I can't get ChatGPT to produce any kind of working code that I would have paid anyone else to do build for me. Um, a lot of code, especially within large firms, is extremely complex and it's not actually the code itself, it's the architecture, it's the relationships with other systems, it's adherence to compliance that that matters. And those are things that we haven't really got evidence that large language models can can do. Um, So what you do start to see, I think, is an expansion of productivity. And then the question is, with that expansion of productivity, does, you you know, is is there demand to soak up that extra work, and my hypothesis will be that that especially in you know tighter fiscal times and with interest rates high, many firms that don't feel they've got a path to growth will find it easier to reduce their headcount than to say we'll keep this productive headcount and win more of a market. Mm. That's the scary story. But of course, the flip side of that is the the complementarity that you were hinting at. The um, in radiography, for example, the the computer assisted, the AI assisted scanning of of data and so on. And and it's yeah. and so perhaps the smart move for our listeners is to get good at working with this new kit. But but remembering remembering what you're bringing to it too. Remembering your your interpretive, your judgment, your skills, because it, it's it's that uh, partnership with the. The yeah. powerful processing is the, per- the powerful uh, computer. I mean, I mean, just to, two points on that. I mean, the radio- radiologist is a great example because six years ago in 2017, Jeff Hinton, who is known as the sort of get- the godfather of uh, uh, AI, and he's a Turing Award winner, which is computer science for, for Nobel, um, gave a-, a talk where he said uh, no one should become a radiologist because at the time, con- computer vision using a technology called deep learning had sh- was showing signs of being much, much better than humans could ever be. Uh, and in the six years since then, not only are there more radiologists employed in the US, the shortage of radiologists has grown. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, one of my childhood friends is, a, is an oncologist. He also works for Microsoft and he's built one of these tools 
to help his work. And it's taken a four hour manual task down to four minutes, which gives him more time to do the treatment plan. And that's certainly what I have found. So, you know, the three of us have all written um, and we all know that our first draft is, am I allowed to use the word crap? It's kind of crap. (laughs) Um, And you want to get to the second and third draft as quickly as you can. And what I now find is the beauty of working with LLNs is I get to my first draft really quickly. And I see this first draft and it's taken me 21 minutes rather than 10 hours. And now I've got several hours to work on the second draft in Microsoft Word, just as I used to do in the old days, (laughs) with a printout that I've scored. That's wonderful. (laughs) Let's just finish, Azim, on the global picture and the regional global picture, if you like. I mean, the the phase that we've just come through pre-generative AI... I think I'm right in saying was dominated by the US, the UK, uh, China, South Korea, Japan, India. Who are the big players going to be? I mean, I think it's right. Maybe we're biased optimistically here in the UK and we're producing this programme in association with PwC UK. But the UK is very well placed, isn't it, to take advantage of these developments? I mean, the UK is super well placed because, you know, first of all, we have a pretty decent tech tech industry and we have a lot of spillover from DeepMind, uh, which is the Google subsidiary based out in, in North London in, in King's Cross. So lots of people have worked there. They've left. They've started companies. We've got strong um, computer science faculty as well. So And we also have government support for this technology through in you know money that's going into to both R&D and developing hardware for for research i think the other reason that we could benefit is that we have this famously strong services industry of which PwC UK is part, but of course there's also um, financial services and so these are areas where the technologies can be extremely helpful because they, these are they they can improve the margins of those firms, they can improve the quality of the the service delivered to to clients um, as well. And and of course, finally, the LLMs are really good in English. You know, they're not so good in Aramaic or in Bengali. Uh, And so that 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 language advantage is also extremely helpful. Uh, and, And and I think that does that does position us quite well, but it also requires, and I think one concern that I would always have about a new technology, it also requires customers who are willing to take that risk on the new technology. And the UK was pretty good when it came to mobile and mobile commerce and e-commerce. So what we have to hope is that it does the same thing again, coming back round to, to this. I mean, the one nation I've missed off this list, of course, is Russia, because the Ukraine war has really taken it off the table as, you know, a welcome collaborator. <laughs> it's certainly not a business co-pilot anymore. Do you think that history may look back and say that some of geopolitics has been um, you know, is altering things. I also think that Israel, which has had an incredible tech reputation, is being interrupted at the moment, mm-hmm. isn't it? Do you do you think that geopolitics is actually going to shape the way that uh, technology plays its part? It must do. Uh, I mean, I, th- I think it will. I mean, with my uh, another hat on, which is, um, you know, I'm, I'm do some work in terms of geopolit- geopolitical risks. Um, at the World uh, Economic Forum, you're uh, a co-chair, Forum. aren't you, of the Global yeah. Futures? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and I and I would say that the having spoken to 
geopolitical analysts over the last year or so and looking at my own thinking, that uh, that risk is there. I think we're into a choppy period of time where geopolitics, which has probably not played that much of a role in boardrooms in terms of their thinking, uh, is really right, right up there. But one of the things I would say is we're deeply, deeply interconnected. I mean, less. I mean, even with with Russia, right? We were very, very interconnected. But uh, but with China, the the connections are so deep. And I was talking to someone quite senior at Apple a few weeks ago, and they were saying that. We've spent 25 years building a supply chain in China, and it's extremely complex. And it's not, it's not physically possible, by which they literally meant by the laws of physics, to reconstruct it somewhere else. You know, we're going to continue to do business in China, and I think that that is part of the navigation that execs now need to, um, you know, to to make sense of. And and you know, we were quite. I think corporate leaders were quite simple around complex issues. A decade ago, you know, when when it was whether it was all the things that became part of the culture war, they, 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 they took very sort of binary stances in a way, and they're having to deal with a lot more nuance now. So it's a new a new skill set they have to achieve uh, establish. I think that's absolutely right. I think the, 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 what you're telling us really is that life's getting more interesting. It, it may get a bit more difficult sometimes in the C-suite and the top of these big organisations, but it's certainly not it's certainly not boring. And the no. possibilities and opportunities are there if we don't panic and kind of keep our perspective on what the technology is, is doing for us and not be too dazzled by it, but putting it into practice and to productive effect. But as you look, thank you so much for being very productive with us today here at PwC in Villiers Street in London. It's been a pleasure listening to you and uh, Julie, I'm sure, wants to just say cheerio in her own way. Well, thank you for joining us, Azim, and um, Perplexity. Can we look that up? Can we give it yeah, 20 bucks a month? Perplexity.ai. Yeah, it's a funny name, uh, but, but it, the product it sounded works like really ask, well. Ask Jeeves, but better. It's like, yeah, actually, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, yeah. Azim, you're going to go. We're then going to talk about you behind your back and say, weren't you wonderful? But for now, Azim Azar, thank you so much for being with us on the Nowhere Office. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Julia. Bye-bye. Well... I learned a lot. Did you, Stefan? Yes, and it's so good to have the time. This is where the podcast really helps because when you just get the headline or the clip or the the sound bite, people are saying things, for example, at the moment, like it's cleverer than you, it's smarter than you. And what Azim helped us to understand, I think, is that, yes, the technology is fantastic, but the human being is still needed and the human being actually has to take the decisions and show some judgment. So I found it quite encouraging that this was not a sort of we're all doomed conversation. Absolutely. And in fact, I just looked at the Pearson's Regional Skills Index for England um, for something else that I'm doing. And, you know, not only do they predict a small but significant net gain of jobs by 2027, but when you look at the skills required, they are all exactly those things that make the difference. In other words, it you know, our humanness is, our, is going to be our competitive advantage. Let's go now for his take to Ben Higgin, the head of technology at PwC. You may remember he joined us in our first in these three programmes when we looked very much at the philosophy and the ethics of AI. And if you haven't heard that, do listen to it um, at your leisure. But let's hear Ben Higgin and his take. (laughs) 
thanks, Julia and Stefan. And what a fascinating conversation. I'm always really pleased to hear people talking about humans uh, when we have a conversation about technology. As you know, at PwC, we talk a lot about being human-led, uh, tech-powered. I think that really came through in the conversation and it's very consistent with the conversations that we're having with our clients. The other thing I'd say is I felt like the conversation really got to the heart of some of the issues that clients are grappling with. First of all, strategy. How is this going to create value either through creating new products and services and revenue generation or through efficiency? There's a lot this technology can do and getting a really clear view on that strategy in the first instance is really important so you know where to focus your efforts. I think the other thing that came through was really around the business case linked to that. And that's a financial business case in many cases, but it also includes things like risk, right? You know, we heard a lot about getting it right. And it's interesting to me that we we are accepting, if you like, of humans getting things wrong. But when new technology comes along, our starting premises, well, it's got to get it all right. And I just, I'm not sure that's ever going to happen. And, you know, we've accepted that the internet gets things wrong. And this technology sometimes get things wrong, but it doesn't mean it's not really valuable. What it means is you've got to think about, okay, when might it get it wrong? And what do you do about that? How do you build that into the system? And actually just learn to manage that risk really differently. And that's a conversation we're having a lot in terms of uh, really building trust in this technology uh, as you learn to deploy it. Sometimes that means slowing down the deployment a bit and putting it in the hands of experts rather than giving it to everybody straight away. So I think it was a really um, fascinating conversation. The other thing I would just pick up on is there's a really big difference between the public versions of these tools and what lots of companies are trying to use, which are kind of enterprise versions. And that does allow you to put confidential data in there and to manage some of the risks around data and cybersecurity in particular, um, so that you're not exposing yourself to that. And I think that's what a lot of companies are working out. How do I take the capability of these tools, which has been made available to the public, but really bring it in-house into my organization? So look, thanks again for the conversation, a really fascinating insight into the world of Gen AI. That was Ben Higgin from uh, PwC. Thanks for that. Yes. I mean, he's completely comfortable with tech and he's a young uh, groover. So, <laughs> you know, if he's happy, we're happy. Um, you have been listening to the second of three specials looking at AI with uh, PwC UK. The Nowhere Office is a fully connected production with me, Julia Hobsbawm. And me, Stefan Stern. And we're all over the immersed infosphere. <laughs> Find us, like us, share us etc. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you to Monica in the PwC studio in London. And thank you as ever to Kevin, who we think is in Miami, but we wouldn't know. He could be, he could be anywhere and we'd still like him, our producer. Thank you for listening. <laughs>